Thank you. Romans chapter 3. I want to look at the first four verses of Romans 3, but I need to back up to Romans 2 to be able to get some context on this. And I thought this morning that I would, I would read this to you out of the English Standard Version because I think it's a little bit, uh, a little bit easier to read uh, and to, to kind of understand. It's, it's important to, to recognize that in this particular passage, Paul is anticipating arguments, and essentially his argument is really, really uh, kind of a threefold argument that's very tightly knit together. He's talking about, about, um, about God's righteousness being upheld, the righteousness of God, and he will... He will, he will finish that off in verses 21 through 25 of chapter 3. But he's also talking about what, what we will see soon in, in, in chapter 3, uh, verse 20, um, when he says that, I'm in verse 4, and I wonder why it read differently. But uh, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. He's going to be making that argument, and that, that's kind of his final statement uh, in this particular passage, that, that no one is justified through the works of the, of, of the law. And so it, it's upholding God's uprighteousness, uh, basically telling us that we are all guilty and that we do not become righteous by our good works even though there's a great emphasis on this passage pertaining to good works, and God is going to judge according to works, is he not? According to what we've read in chapter 2. However, our salvation is not about our works. If our salvation is about our works, um, we'd be in so much trouble. We would be in so much trouble. And, and... Sometimes Christians don't get along anyway, right? Of course, I'm talking about my last church, right? But uh, imagine if we were saved by works and we would be comparing ourselves to each other all the time and we would be hoping. I think some of us anyway hope and pray that God grades on a curve, right? So as long as I just do one point better than you, I'm in, you're out. That's a loving thought, isn't it? And we would be comparing ourselves to each other. But the reality is, thank God for God's grace in many aspects, but the thing is, if it was not for his grace, we would never be saved. We'd, we just wouldn't. We, we, we're, you know, uh, our, our nature has been corrupted to the point that we needed the work of Jesus on the cross to set us free from all of that. And then the, the work of the Holy Spirit as he indwells us and begins to form us and change us and transform us into the image of Jesus Christ. So I want to back up actually to verse uh, 17. So I'm going to back up quite a ways. Verse 17 of chapter 2. Because he is addressing this idea of the Jews feeling that they are superior because they are God's chosen people and they have the law. And, and uh, we did look at this quite a bit really uh, recently. But because they had the law and they were able to, to teach the law, 
uh, and, and, and instruct other people. Actually, I'm going to back up to 25. I won't back up all the way to 17, but you can read that later. Um, but this idea of lording the law over others and putting themselves in the position of, uh, as the instructor and being people who heard the word, instructed others about the word, but were not doers of the word themselves. Teachers will incur a stricter judgment. So, and that doesn't just relate to pastors. If you teach someone, you will incur a stricter judgment. That means if you're a parent, you probably have taught your kids something, we hope, right? You will incur a stricter judgment. If you're a boss and you teach your employees, you will incur a stricter judgment because what I've found about this idea of teaching, particularly uh, when people are watching our lives, much more of the faith is probably caught more than it is taught. And so that's, that's like at times I have to be very careful. If I drop something, I'm out in the woods with you guys cutting wood and I drop something on my toe and it hurts very, 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 very bad. And I hope you're not near shout. Right? Uh, or I got to, you know, you know, it's like I got to go um, sew my lip shut. You know, it, 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 it's, and so we have to be careful. And, and, and um, again, as I shared on, on, on Wednesday night, unless you're called to teach, you, you don't, you don't want to do this. Because then you end up in heaven in the pastor section, and that's not a whole lot of fun either, okay? But uh, anyway, I'm trying to get out of it, so hopefully I'll join some of you, all right? I'd rather hang out with you than them. But anyway, let's take it at verse 25 of chapter 2. It says, For circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law. But if you are a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? I'm reading actually out of the New King James. I'll, I'll, I'll transition. Um, if I can find my place here, a new Bible, I can never find my way around. But I want to read this to you out of the ESV. Uh, I want to pick this up back at, at, um, at verse 27. Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code or the Torah and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. This is the important verse here. This is what transitions us into chapter 3. For no one is a Jew, uh, for, but a Jew, uh, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart. By the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Then what advantage has the Jew? Now he's talking about national Israel here when he asks this question. What advantage has the Jew? Or what value is the circum uh, circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. 
Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. So, Father, I'd ask that you would speak to our hearts this morning as we look at this passage and that you would grant us understanding and give us uh, the ability to apply this into our own lives. We pray that your spirit would have your way with us this morning. Fill us that we might hear from you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. So he's telling us in chapter, at the end of chapter 2, I'll just go back to the New King James, I believe, but in one who is a Jew, who is one who is a Jew inwardly. In other words, one who is spiritually a Jew. One who has recognized that God has called them, responded to that calling, because the Jews were what? They were God's chosen people. They were called, out of Egypt I called my son, which is a reference to Israel, but it's also a reference to whom? Jesus, amen. They were called out of Egypt. We were called out of darkness. And we responded with an inward commitment. The inward commitment is something that is made known or manifest by how we live outwardly. That's part of what Paul is talking about here in the second and then transitioning into the third uh, chapter. A Jew is one who is one inwardly and that circumcision is that of the heart. That is this removal of the flesh, this removal of the old nature and it is something that is done it says, in the spirit. When we are saved, we are given a new nature. Now, thank God that when we are saved, that God loves us so much that not only that he saves us, but he does not want to leave us in the condition that we were in when we got saved. Because some of us, when, when I, uh, of course, I got saved at eight, so how much can you do at, at well, okay, I mean, I guess some people can. I, I mean, how much can you really do at age eight? Okay. Uh, but some of us were in some pretty bad ways when we became Christians. Not only did God love you enough to save you, but God loves you enough in the spirit to transform you. And I think often it is, is that we resist the work of the Spirit. That's what Paul says, to not grieve the Spirit, to not, to not, uh, to not resist the Spirit, to, um, to be available to the work of the Spirit. When, when you are in those situations when you really don't want to be a Christian, you know what I'm talking about? Some of you are looking at me like I just grew a second head, but I'm going to say it again. When you are in those situations when you really don't want to be a Christian, I've told you about some of mine. <laughs> I'm dying to hear about some of you. Never mind. Anyway, uh, we'll, we'll do that on some Sunday. Tell me about when you don't want to be a Christian. No, that, we won't go there. Okay. Uh, and yet you hear the voice of the Spirit saying, I want you to do this instead. 
I mean, I've heard that voice, and there have been times I've been like, can we do best two out of three? All right, you ever thought that? Of course you've thought that. And, and, and yet it's, it's a work of the Spirit where it is that removal of the old nature. Because the flesh is something that we carry around with us. Paul's going to get into this more and more as we get into the book of Romans. But the flesh is something that we carry around with us uh, wherever we go. And the flesh doesn't get better with age. It gets worse. That's why at at least, you know, it's like, as I'm getting older, I'm, I'm thanking God that I'm a Christian even more. I don't think anybody would be able to tolerate me if, they, if I wasn't. You know, it just, the, the flesh does not get better. It gets worse. And it is a work in the spirit, not in the letter. Now, if there was ever a, a uh, caution of an expression against this black and white type of legalism that some folks slip into, I, I, I don't see any better than right here. That we don't live according to the letter, we live according to the Spirit. And, and, I, and I think even in that regard, and boy, I could get off on a diatribe here and I don't want to, but I think even in that regard, we have to be careful how we interpret Scripture. And how we apply it into our lives. And even more so, how we want to apply the Bible in everybody else's life. So maybe I should have gone back to verse 17. Because it says, if you, if you follow the law, do you teach others to follow the law? Do you do it yourself? Or are you, are you telling people not to commit adultery? But do you, do you commit adultery? It's a work in the Spirit. Because if I have a relationship with God through the letter of the law, I really don't have much of a relationship. I'm sorry, but I don't really believe that, that we do when we're just trying to follow rules and regulations. The relationship that God desires to have with each one of you is a relationship of ongoing, whether it be great, small, uh, medium, whatever the case may be, but an ongoing transformation of you where you have a removal of the flesh and you become to walk even greater in the things of the Spirit. That's what this is talking about here. And therefore, whose praise is not from men, Well, you get around a bunch of people that are legalistic and you're not legalistic yourself, they are not going to like you. They really aren't. And then they're going to want to do what? Judge and fix you. Fixers. Don't you love fixers? (laughs) Shut up, Mike. Anyway, (laughs) the praise is from God, not from men. You see, if we seek the praise of men, then we're looking for God to grade on a curve. Does that make sense? We want God to compare us to the other folks. And if the other folks are saying what a great person we are, then naturally we expect that when we stand before God, it's like, guess what? Everybody else said I was good. How come you don't say I'm good? 
But we already saw this, and again, you have to go back and reread this in chapter 2, that God judges by the works that we do. And what God is looking to do in this circumcision of the heart is remove the old nature by the work in the Spirit, in cooperation with the Spirit. And what I mean by cooperation with the Spirit, it, I mean in submitting to the Spirit, particularly in those hard things that we do not want to submit to him about. Because each of us have those. And... and, and I mean, I, 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 I want to say I don't know why we resist the Spirit, but I know why we resist the Spirit, because sin is pleasurable. Okay, if you must, for a season, all right? But sin is pleasurable. And we are the way we are because we want to be the way that we are. And sometimes, uh, and I've noticed even in, in my own life, I hate to admit it to you, but in my own life at times, I feel like that, that God really has to do a shaking work. I used to tell people God would beat the stuffing out of me, but I don't really go there anymore. But, but God does this shaking work in our lives where it's so disruptive. that we recognize that all we can do is just try to hang on to him. And when life is so disruptive and we are truly hanging on to him, guess what? He now has our attention. And if you ever were in a place where you had an ear to hear, usually it's in that disruptive period when you're cleaving to the Lord. And if you ever should hear, those of those times because I believe that when, when, when God calls us close in those, those difficult times, it's because probably he has some things he wants to, to, to share with us. Now, actually, he has some things he wants to share with us each and every day. Isn't that not true? All right. But sometimes we get a little bit of hard of hearing or we're listening to a different radio station. We do these type of things. And we are much more like Jacob wrestling with the angel of the Lord at the river Jabbok than what we want to admit about ourselves. I love that story. I won't take the time to look at it today because I haven't even gotten out of verse 29 yet. I want to get, get into verse uh, 1 of chapter 3. But it asks the question, what advantage then has the Jew or what is the profit of circumcision? If they have the law, if they teach the law, but they don't do the law, why would it be of any advantage to them then? Now, you have to understand, and I don't think I mentioned this earlier, but you have to understand that Paul is anticipating arguments that are going to come against him for him making the case of God's righteous judgment being upheld and for him making the case that by the works of the law so no flesh be justified. And so he's anticipating the argument and then he's responding to it. That's what he's doing here in the back part of chapter 2 and also going in here into chapter 3. He's asking essentially a, 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 a rhetorical question or a question that he anticipates to be an argument against his case and then he's responding to it. Essentially, he's in court. 
That would be one way to describe what's going on here. So what advantage then has the Jew? Now after reading chapter 2, I would say none. What's interesting too is, is, is that as he, he uh, uh, goes forth, um, he even asks the question, are the Jews better than the Gentiles? Not at all. Chapter, uh, chapter 3, verse 9. Are they better than the Gentiles? Not at all. So it, it's, you know, he's, again, anticipating arguments. Not that he's contradicting himself. But what advantage has the Jew? It's, he says much in every way. Now, to fully answer that question, we have to go to Romans chapter 9. We're not going to do that today. You can look at Romans 9 on your own. He gives eight reasons, by the way, the advantage of the Jew. And, but what he focuses on here in chapter 3, it says chiefly or mainly, or I might even read it to you out of the uh, ESV, Much in every way, it says, to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What are the oracles of God? The oracle is the word, it's from the word that is derived from the word logos, which means word. Particularly, it's logoin, and it refers to a spoken word. It's another form of a spoken word. We talked about that earlier in the book of Ephesians. But what this is telling us is that the Jews had the advantage of God's spoken word. And one of the things I can think of, of course, is where did God speak the word? Spoke at it in Sinai. Of course, the people are totally freaked out. They send Moses up there, probably thinking, hoping they want, he's not going to come back. Right? Eventually, they, plan on, they don't plan on him coming back, and they start worshiping a golden calf. Stupid people. But anyway... God speaks these words. He speaks to Torah to them or to Moses who brings it to the people. But they had that as the advantage is that, that God spoke to them. His spoken word, he spoke through the prophets. Hebrews tells us that. What's interesting about this word is that there, it means so much more than just a word that is spoken. It also means that it is uh, a word that not only were they to hear, not only were they entrusted with the spoken word, but these divine oracles or divine, divinely spoken words uh, were more than just something that they were to safeguard and to teach, but it was something that they were required to have faith in and obedience towards. In other words, with the right or privilege comes what? Responsibility. So they are responsible for that which they have been entrusted with. Now again, we can we can We can translate this all the way into 2021. This side of the cross. 
And I think when we, when we read Jews here, we can also apply it to the church. Are we, are we uh, re- uh, receiving the spoken word of God in our lives? And are we receiving it by faith? Are we being obedient to it? Or are we just saying, well, that was really great. That was really great. Now let's go home and have lunch and kind of just blow the whole thing off. And I, and I understand that, that, that in the heat of the moment at times that all of this stuff goes out the window with some of us at times. But there has to be, I believe, what Paul told Timothy of this engrafted word, that is this word that is attached to your very soul that is, that is able to save you. In other words, it cannot be, and I've already said it referring to James, it cannot be something that you just hear and not do. It's something that you have to hear and that you have decided to commit yourself that you are going to do this. Even if you don't do it perfectly, which you will not, but there has to be some level of commitment on this. They were committed the oracles. They were given, entrusted the oracles of God. But then the question is asked, for what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God uh, without or of no effect? So God gives the law to the Jews. He calls them as his people. He calls them out of Egypt. He redeems them. Uh, that's what Passover is all about. He brings them into the promised land after they walk around the wilderness. All the old generation dies off and takes 40 years to do that. And he brings them into the land of, that's flowing with milk and honey. A physical expression of what he does in our lives spiritually. And they were entrusted with so much, but many of them were what? They were not faithful. They were not faithful. Is that a stick in someone's, the spoke of someone's wheel? Does that short circuit the plan of God? Does that make God then unfaithful because his people whom he chose were not faithful? Does that make his faithfulness of no effect? And Paul says, certainly not. Let God be true, verse 4, but every man a liar, as it is written, that ye may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. Now, that last part of verse 4 is a direct quote from Psalm 51, verse 4. It is a quote from the Septuagint, Greek translation of the Old Testament. So it's going to read a little bit differently than um, what we would read in, let's say, the New King James Version. And uh, I actually want to turn to Psalm 51 if we could. Because what, what I'm, what I'm, as, I'm, as I'm reading this, as I'm thinking about this, and, and there's, there's this rabbinical principle, okay, both in, in, in pre, uh, pre-times of Jesus rabbinical ideas and also post Jesus' earthly life in rabbinical ideas, both in Judaism and in Messianic Judaism, all right? This was a prevalent idea in 
rabbinical Judaism was that when a passage was mentioned, a verse was mentioned in the scriptures, it was not just a mentioning uh, or, or a calling for us to take a look at that one verse. In this case, it would be Psalm 51 verse 4. But it is, it is a uh, given to us to draw our attention to that entire passage. Does that make sense? All right. In other words, when I read Psalm 51 verse 4 out of the Septuagint in the New King James, if we're going to think rabbinically, which I don't think is a bad thing to do, by the way, but if we are going to think rabbinically, it, is, it should draw our attention to the entire psalm, Psalm 51. That is what is being being given to us through this passage because I think, I think what's going on here is Paul is, is dropping some serious hints because when I read here in verse 4, or actually verse 3, what if, uh, for what if, if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make, faithful, make the faithfulness of God without effect? Of course, the answer to that is no, but when I think about my own unfaithfulness, when I think about at times my own unbelief, does that make God's faithfulness toward me null and void? Well, according to what Paul is telling us here in chapter 3, verse 4, no, it does not. But there still has to be this place where I have to, one, deal with my own unfaithfulness or my own unbelief, and yet also we still have to deal with that, the fact that God may be justified in his words and may overcome when he judges or when he is judged. Do you realize that God is on trial all the time? He really is. If God, you ever hear that? If God was a God of love. All right. Now, they don't give, I checked myself. They don't care about God. They don't love God. They don't want to follow God. They don't want to serve God. But if something happens bad in their life, guess who is responsible? God. That's putting God on trial. That is also assuming the position of God themselves. And they're trying to take God to task, even though they live in unbelief, even though they live in unfaithfulness. And even in the, in the course of that, God is still faithful. Because when we find ourselves in unfaithfulness, when we find ourselves in unbelief, what are we called to do? Repent. Repent. And that is what Psalm 51 is all about. We're not going to look at the whole psalm. I'm just going to point out a few things to you. I'm almost out of time anyway. Psalm 51, I'm sure you're very familiar with this. It is David's psalm of repentance. Matter of fact, it's even written in the introduction to the chief musician, the Psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. And what does he start out with? Verse 1, have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the mercies of your, excuse me, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, 
blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Verse 4, against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. So, here he is confessing in verse 4 that God is blameless. Here he is also confessing his own sin and calling upon God in verse 1 to have mercy upon him according to what? His loving kindness. Loving kindness in the Hebrew is the Hebrew word hased, H-E-S-E-D. I've talked to you guys about this many times. It is a love that you cannot push away. It is a love that you cannot run away from. It is a love that you, you, you cannot drown out. It is a love that although you change the radio station, it goes back and it follows you and at times haunts you wherever you go because God loves you that much. And he's calling upon God to have mercy upon him. Part of his what? Go back to Romans 3. Part of his what? His faithfulness. See how these two tie together? See see the connection here? Because of God's faithfulness, he has loving kindness towards you. And all we have to do in our unbelief and unfaithfulness is to call upon him and ask him to have mercy on us. And he will do what? He will. He will. Which, by the way, I don't know about you, but uh, something I need to do every day. Something I need to do every day. And then he goes forward. Again, I'm just covering just little highlights of this passage. Verse 10, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit with me, a faithful spirit in me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me in your generous spirit. And then he says, then I will teach transgressors your way. So he's going back to chapter 2 here of Romans. Or this is where, where Paul is drawing from this. And sinners will be converted unto you. But what David understood in Psalm 51, before I teach somebody else, I need to get right with you first, God, myself. And that I need to have you create in me a clean heart because the reality is back to Romans 4 a 3 verse 4 that God will be justified in his words and may overcome when he is judged or when he judges either one because he is faithful and because if we are if John tells us in 1 John chapter 1 verse 9 if we confess of our confess our sins he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and then to cleanse us from all unrighteousness see the thing is because God loves you so much he loves you in the midst of your unfaithfulness he loves you in the midst of your unbelief and he is inviting you back calling you back waiting for you to return 
to confess that and then to restore. Restore unto me the joy of my salvation, David wrote. To walk again in fellowship with God and allow God, this goes back to verse 29 of chapter 2, to allow God to create in us a clean heart and to renew a right spirit within us. You see, this whole passage here again is, is about, about God's righteousness being upheld. But when we, we talk about God's righteousness, we can either dwell on that theological fact and be good with it, or we can truly hear the invitation. Okay, God is righteous. If I'm honest with myself, guess what? I'm not. But God has called me unto himself. So therefore, when I read about this theology, when I read about this doctrine, hopefully we hear the voice of the Spirit calling us to something even further, something even greater. And that is, Lord, I want to take what you are and allow you to do that finished work in my life. I want to respond with a heart of submission. I want to respond with a heart of surrender. I want to recognize that you are faithful in spite of the fact that I am faithless because you cannot deny yourself, Paul told uh, Timothy. And I want to respond to that, and I want you to renew a right spirit within me. That's how we read the Bible. This isn't about facts and figures. That's a relationship with the Lord by the spirit of the law, not the letter. Does that make sense to you guys? So when we read these things, read them as an invitation from the creator of the universe who just simply loves you and wants to spend time with you. That's it. That's all God wants. He loves you. He wants to spend time with you.